So it's an eclectic bunch of sayings, it seems, here, starting off with Jesus, kind of strangely addressing how we manage our social behaviour with each other, but the kind of unifying theme being around two and three gathering or agreeing together. In an uh, era of uh, individuality, the whole notion of accountability is not one that we are particularly well versed in, I think. It's really easy to make either an avoidant or a ham-fisted response to helping community life work well together. Uh, It's hard to find a deft touch in matters of behaviour correction in a group of people. But I think that's what Jesus is hoping for here. The first thing to be aware of, of course, is that our behaviour does impact other people. Contrary to recently invented popular perception, uh, the way we live does affect others. And it's um, something that probably sounds obvious, but it's a fallacy to think that what I do is nobody else's business because what I do has an impact on the life of the community and that is other people's business. Our behaviours do impact those around us. So it's important that we help the community do well together. That's what laws are about in our broader community Um, They're the current wisdom on how we most effectively live together without destroying the delicate fabric of society. If the agreed norms are transgressed in our society, the community moves to restore the person and to protect the fabric of society. And we have a a series of things to do that. We we want to bring the the person back into the uh, the bounds of normal behaviour and we also want to send a warning that going outside those bounds and not, not acceptable. So we do that in a whole bunch of ways. Um, there might be warnings initially, fines perhaps, and then possibly even incarceration. Once upon a time there was even the death penalty and still is in some countries. We don't do that anymore. So there's some similarity to those notions and what Jesus is saying here First go and speak privately to the person. They might just be completely unaware about the impact of their behaviour. So this is like a warning. And hopefully if you give the person that wake-up call, they go, I didn't realise. Better get my act together. Sorry about that. Let's do it better now. But maybe they're a bit more hard-headed than that or a bit disagreeable and uh, they decide not to heed your warning, and then Jesus says, well, get one or two others to go with you to strengthen your case as you make it to this person. Now, left to ourselves, of course, we could enforce all sorts of nonsense because I was having a bit of a conversation with Ian this morning about how we have our own kind of idealised Nirvana-type worlds that we think how everything should work. And it's easy for us to impose those on other people. But when you bring somebody else in, they might bring a a different perspective and then you've kind of got a bit of a conversation going. You know, is that really as serious as you thought or, you know, I strongly agree with you or whatever it might be. And provided that person's not simply in a, a group think with you or you're lackey of some kind, they can bring a fresh perspective and if you 
agree together that this is an offence worthy of some kind of sanction, then that brings force to that sanction. And this is all with the intent of restoring the person to fruitful engagement with the community and protecting the, the community from being torn apart. If the offence threatens the viability of the community, then action should be taken to remove that threat for the sake of the community. This is why we put people in jail sometimes. It's because it's safer for everybody if they're locked up. Now, that's not an easy decision to come to and in our broader society we have uh, police and then law courts and barristers and all sorts of processes to ensure that that's something that's done with due seriousness. How do we decide in the church that somebody should be expelled? And I think the answer is when their behaviour threatens the viability of the church. Um, So viability is different to comfort. So some people come into the church and they make us feel a bit uncomfortable, but that actually could be a good thing. We have to weigh it up. Um, Sometimes a new idea or a lack of conformity might make us think, oh, something's not as comfortable as it used to be, but that could actually be a breath of fresh air that we need in the church at times. So we have to be very careful as we make these assessments. Will it ultimately strengthen the group or is it going to tear us apart? At my previous congregation, we took a fairly open approach. We wanted to encourage people to explore both their faith and their doubts um, so that they could build their lives on the strongest and deepest uh, foundation they could possibly find. And that meant being open to a wide range of voices and opinions and experiences and different interpretations of everything. This desire for openness initially blinded me to the destructive nature of a particular group of voices in that setting. I thought that the whole group accepting this other group might calm their fears and make them more open and uh, able to engage in the community in a better way. But it didn't. In the end, I allowed their shrill and undermining reactivity, as it was, too much time in the congregation And I realised all too late that uh, my responsibility to the congregation as a whole had uh, been neglected, in a sense. It was being compromised by my unwillingness to call out what had become a corrosive set of behaviours to the group as a whole. Sometimes the caring thing is to expel a person. This makes the impact of their behaviour unambiguously clear. It both serves to protect the group as a whole and it's the sharpest wake-up call we can offer to the perpetrator. If they want to be part of the group, then they need to respect the group. So that's Jesus' instruction about how we deal with a person who sins. I haven't even talked about what sin is because I think that's a whole other area that's so complicated now. Um, So we can talk about another time. But I wanted to come back to this other saying that Jesus says for a second time in Matthew's Gospel. We touched on it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that which has been bound, that which we bind on earth has been bound in heaven. That which we loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. And uh, you remember when I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, I kind of gave it a, 
a reading that our words are powerful. It was in the context of a sermon I was talking about the power of our words and uh, if we bind something in, a, in the way that we speak about it, it has an impact on people and they can experience that as a very binding thing and loosing or setting free in the same way. This time I want to nuance this a little bit because I looked at the, the tenses of what's being used here. If you bind something on earth, it has been bound in heaven and it's kind of like something we do in the present has this trailer to the past that had already happened. And I thought, well, maybe this is more a diagnostic tool for us. What we bind here on earth makes plain to us what we hold as having been bound in heaven or in eternity. What we set free is what we believe is genuinely to be set free for all eternity. And I think a, a, a Reading of this nature, again, functions as a warning to us. Don't just believe the doctrine that you tell yourself that you believe. Have a look at the way you live. What are the things that you find acceptable, that you set free and allow other people to do and allow yourself to do? Because that's actually your true beliefs. What are the things that you you bind up and say nobody should do and I can't do and because they're your true beliefs. It may not be the same as what you tell yourself or other people that you believe. Because as we look at our behaviour, we start to see the nature of the God we actually believe in. So even if someone tells you that their God is loving, if they behave in a way that shows no indications of love, the real God that they believe in is not so loving. That's the reality, I think. And it's worth considering what are the things that really guide your ultimate beliefs because many of us would say, well, the Bible. But we know there's so many interpretations of Scripture. Who gave you your interpretation of Scripture? Where did that come from? Did you go back to first principles? Have you worked out where those principles came from? Why they're so important? Who made them seem so important to you. I well remember when my assumptions about the idea of hell started to shift. I became aware how unfounded my beliefs about hell were. There was um, an international story about a decade ago of a, about a guy named Joseph Fritzl. Does anyone remember him? Uh, he was a very uh, unhappy man, I think. He was in Austria and uh, he had imprisoned his daughter for 20 years in an underground bunker and fathered several children to her. And I remember the horror I felt about this man imprisoning his daughter. He didn't murder her. Now, in a funny kind of way, I thought that would have been more compassionate, kinder in a way, but what he did was he kept her alive and in a form of torment. And uh, as I thought about that, I couldn't resist the parallels between that and the way I had construed this notion of hell and thought, hang on, if I'm so outraged about a man doing something like that, how do I think about the idea of hell and God keeping people alive, which is the way I construed it, to torment them? And as I moved past my sanctioned sources of belief about that, I realised that, for example, the scripture doesn't say all those sorts of things. There's a few images there, but they're pretty vague and poetic. 
And most of my ideas about hell came from Dante and his Inferno and the pictures that have been drawn as a result of them and that kind of thing. Where do our ideas come from? Because sometimes they come from places very different to where we think they come from. I had thought my ideas about hell were from the Bible, but they weren't. They had popular ideas that had seeped into culture from other places. A clear appreciation of what we hold as having been bound or loosed in heaven and from whence those beliefs came and where they uh, are founded, as it were, will serve us in forming deeper and more surely founded convictions, as well as fostering a more gracious openness when deep and well-founded conviction is not possible or just not necessary. And this is a wake-up to us, I think, because, again, this theme of where two or three agree or are gathered and this kind of thing, it's about, on your own, you can believe all sorts of nonsense and, indeed, Together with people who agree with you, you can believe all sorts of nonsense as well. But where there's more than one person, at least you've got the opportunity of some critique, of the the possibility of people challenging what you were brought up with or what you've assumed, etc. Because the the function of our assumptions is they function as God to us. They're the things we don't question. They have authority that just comes out of us or directs our life. And the standard of agreement means we cannot get away with enforcing our personal biases. Of course, we can still have groupthink, but there is this opportunity to work through the complexity and come to an idea of agreement. And so we come to this notion of agreement. Why is agreement so important and so uncommon? I think agreement is quite an elusive thing. We more frequently assume it than achieve it. And I say achieve because I think it takes really hard work to get to. Most of what passes for agreement most of the time is really the absence of energy or interest to explore the differences. And so we simply go with the flow, which is fine a lot of the time, but that falls far short of actual agreement. Agreement is not simply the absence of antagonisms, it is a shared conviction that takes considerable effort to work out and if you do work it out, it is incredibly powerful. When you achieve agreement, there is enormous power in that. You, uh, I wonder if you've ever experienced that power of agreement in something. There's even small ways in which we experience it. I think if you're with a group of people and you're deciding what restaurant to go to and you all say, yes, let's go and have pizza, there's this sense of, oh, yeah, pizza, let's go and do it. But if some people are going, mm, I want dumplings or a bit of Thai would be good, very different kind of experience. But what about when we pray together? Because prayer is one of those very individual kinds of things and I, I canvassed uh, our Thursday night prayer group just to get a few ideas from them and um, Janet gave me permission to share some of her ideas and so did Trisha actually. Because um, I don't know about you, but when I pray on my own, it's a fairly haphazard process. I might just suddenly think of something and offer a prayer, you know, kind of conversation to God, all the while knowing that God knows me so well I don't even need to finish my sentences. And halfway through I might realise something that I was saying is actually 
not really very accurate or not very true and kind of the interaction with God changes me and da-da-da. And it, honestly, if you could get a printout of my thought processes and that, they probably wouldn't make sense even to me, let alone to anybody else. It's a fairly haphazard process. But when we get together on Thursday nights, and a little advert break here, if you want to join us for prayer on Thursday nights, it's at 8 o'clock in the evening. There's a, a Zoom link in the weekly post and you just have to click on that and you can come on and you don't even have to say anything, just join us in prayer. And it's a really wonderful experience. But when we pray together on Thursday nights, the prayers are different in that each of us think about what we're praying. We don't just think about what we're praying, but we think about the people with whom we are praying because they are hearing our prayers and that changes the way we pray because you're thinking about, does this actually make sense outside of my head? Does that make sense to the people who are gathered here? Are they going to be able to say yes and amen to that or am I being a bit selfish here or a bit caught up in my own world and like we always do a little bit get caught up in our own worlds and we're always a little bit selfish but it's it's stronger somehow when you come to agreement with someone else it changes the way that we pray and I'm confident to say those things because Trisha and Janet and I didn't get a response from Ray in particular but they agreed with me and that gives me confidence to say this is true and there's power in agreement. And this is a different kind of agreement to the kind of agreement of the mob. When the mob all want to do something, there's this action in unison in which no one person actually takes responsibility for their actions. If you've ever been caught up with a mob action or indeed watched it on TV, uh, there's some uh, riots going on in the US you might have caught sight of, People will do things in a mob that they would never even think of doing on their own or when they were fully present. They get caught up with a moment and they'll do stuff. So the the mob can work in a unison kind of way but nobody's really fully present or taking responsibility. The kind of agreement that Christ invites for us is when we are all fully present and we can actually act in a range of different ways but we agree on the purpose for which we are acting, what this is all about and what it's for. See, Jesus' directives about managing unhelpful community behaviour are about caring for the group as a whole as well as the people who are part of it. To guard against petty grievances or unnecessarily dividing the community, it's best to get other people involved and see if your grievance is just you being stupid or whether there's something more to it than that. And the things that we allow or forbid reveal our true beliefs, what we think God is like even. They reveal to us those things we hold to be true in heaven and they are a far more accurate reading of our deep beliefs than any statements of faith we might ascribe to. When our hearts go through the refining process of seeking to find agreement with other believers, then we are on to something powerful. There's no power in all of creation quite like the gentle serving power 
of the church set free together in agreement with Jesus. This church always has and always will change the world. Let us be part of that. Let us pray. But we thank you for your very practical guidance to us. We ask that we would hear what your spirit is saying to us, your church, to the glory of your name. Amen.